Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. So, Sean, if the last two years have shown us anything about leadership in the church, it surely includes the need for flexibility and adaptability and courage in ministry. And yet too many of the stories you and I are hearing are from pastors and ministry leaders who have begun to lose hope in the face of these challenging times. There's definitely the need to develop and build resiliency to fend off discouragement and defeat. Yeah, and today's guest uh, is going to help us with that. Dr. Todd Bolsinger is the co-owner and principal of A.E. Sloan Leadership, an executive coaching and consulting firm that works with church, nonprofit, and marketplace leaders in leading change. He's also the executive director of the Dupree Center Church Leadership Institute. He's an associate professor of leadership formation at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he served as the vice president for six years. And prior to his career in education, he served as a pastor for 27 years. So he's highly qualified for this conversation. Hmm. Um, He's the author of five books, one of my favorite books, uh, Canoeing the Mountains, uh, and one of my new favorite books, uh, Tempered Resilience, (laughs) How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. So Todd Bolsinger, welcome to Hope Renewed. It is nice to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Todd, I need to tell you, I don't think there's a book Sean has that's not his favorite book. So <laughs> Fair enough. that's not true. I don't say that all the time. Sean is a voracious reader and uh, just brings so much to, to our ministry. But we are so grateful to have you here today uh, sharing with us. And I'd just like to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry journey. Uh, how did God lead you to where you are today? Well, um, I spent 27 years as a pastor. Um, that's um, 17 years of that in one congregation. God gave me the desire of my heart um, after being trained for 10 years and doing uh, two degrees at Fuller Seminary. Um, I got to become the pastor at San Clemente Presbyterian Church when my kids were young. I had a three-year-old son and a three-month-old daughter, and um, I held up my daughter at um, my installation service and said, you're all invited to her high school graduation, and we were there until she did. And so so I had this deep dive with a congregation that I love, and that, um, and near the end of that time, um, when I, you know, as my daughter was getting older, and I began to think, I wonder if this actually is going to match, like this is going to be the time frame. What I realized is my heart had continued to soften and my attention continued to go toward other leaders. And mm. so um, I began partly because of my teaching and my speaking and some work I did in our denomination. I began doing more work in leadership development and I ended up doing some executive coaching with a company, even while I was a pastor and just really found that my, really my personal call in life is to help faith leaders thrive as change leaders. And, um, and that led me to seminary to Fuller Seminary, because that's where you do a lot of training of future leaders. Mm-hmm. And then uh, now has led me to uh, be able to start our own consulting company and speaking company and work with the Church Leadership Institute at Fuller. Um, every day I wake up thinking, how do I help faith leaders thrive as change leaders? And I get mm-hmm. to work with a great team of people doing that. 
And it sounds like your journey has informed the way that, that you have done that. And of course, we believe God shapes us in, in all those things. So along this golden road where you've had no bumps and everything's been just perfect <laughs> and, and uh, has created this, have there been any times, and I know there have because I've written yeah. the book, uh, have there been times or share with us times when, when you've had that sense of, of maybe losing hope or feeling hopelessness and, and how did you find it again? What, mm-hmm. what were the resiliency building things in your life? Well, you know, in, in Canoe in the Mountains, I tell the story of, of being in this really awkward place where um, every measure that people would say makes a good, healthy, successful church was going in the right direction. Everything was, as they say, up into the right. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not cataclysmic, not explosive. It wasn't drawing any attention, but it was just healthy and it was going well except for the morale of my leaders. <laughs> I mean, um, I had a group of leaders who I really respected, who were just becoming more and more cynical and more disconnected. And I was stuck. And part of what really hit me was, it was the first time in my life where I couldn't think my way out of the problem or s- strategize the way out of the problem. I was just stuck. And part of the reason I was so stuck is because my leadership style that got me this far wouldn't take me to the next place. Mm. So it really is what led to the entire exploration of what's called adaptive leadership, which is the work that comes out of Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky in Har- at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me, um, it's what got me thinking about how to lead differently, how to lead when you're not an expert, when you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my own, I would say that every single thing I've written came out of either my own leadership crisis or a question someone asked me that challenged one of my leadership assumptions. And so it's been part of my own journey. And that's uh, the whole book is a story of somebody asking me a question or challenging me on something and me having to go figure it out. Hmm. Have have you found that? So now I'm really going to dig deep here. So using the Lewis and Clark imagery, you know, standing there looking at the mountains is, is that, that moment of, of crisis. And, and I think oftentimes pastors find themselves in those moments and are tempted to, to walk away from it or try to, you know, uh, try harder from what they've been doing. The, the key to not allowing that moment to, to remove hope, uh, but to find hope in that. Um, and and not, not anything magic, certainly, but a, as you think about those moments in your life, uh, were there particular things that, that were hopeful and helpful there? Well, one of the best questions I was asked by one of my mentors, um, she's actually a spiritual director and she was a former vice president for Youth for Christ for training and um, Lynn Ziegenfuss. She said that one of the questions that she always asks leaders is, what is it that God needs to do in your life right now that God needs you to be in this place to do it? Mm-hmm. And part of what I realized was very often what I needed God to do was show me the end of my own limits. Like, mm. like, like it would be ridiculous for you to keep trying harder. Like I have a, uh, my default is I'm going to outwork this problem. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, I'm just going to dig deep and I'm going to outwork it. And I said, you know, trying to trying harder and outworking problems when you're genuinely stuck, when you're in a genuinely different day, a different terrain is like paddling a canoe harder when there isn't any water. Hmm. you're just going to exhaust yourself. And, and what you literally have to do is like stand up, look around and realize I'm going to have to let go of this canoe. 
Mm. The hard part is I'm really good at canoeing. <laughs> like, like, like the Lewis and Clark story is really about guys who invented a boat. They invented their own boat. They're really good water guys. And the, the terrain was totally different. I mean, they were confronting an entirely different world that nobody of their European descent even knew existed. Like they just, mm. the, the, one of my favorite quotes from somebody about Lewis and Clark's story was a scholar who said, when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass and they were facing the Rocky Mountains, which, you know, everybody in their mind, their mental model of everybody was the Shenandoah Mountains, like yeah. rounded, <laughs> rounded 4,000 foot. Like, you know, I, I tease my son-in-law who grew up in Ohio, you know, a ski mountain in Ohio is about 300 or 400 feet high. Yeah. You know, there are 3,000 where we ski in Idaho, right? Mm -hmm. So their mental model was completely blown. Mm. He said, when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass, they knew less about the American West than Neil Armstrong knew about the moon. Mm. Armstrong had seen pictures of the moon. So they really were in a whole new world. And that's, I think, where most of us are finding ourselves today. I mean, this is, this is my work and my work. And this spans theological, uh, mm. denominational, ecclesiological divides. This, everybody, I, I work with groups I mean, I, I work to, I, I speak to groups who don't speak to each other. Like I speak to groups <laughs> that are so diverse and yet we're all experiencing the exact yeah. same thing, this radically disruptive world. For it. So that disruption can, can be a good thing for us. And, uh, you know, I coach pastors through burnout written mm -hmm. book based on my own story that I believe that working through burnout made me a better leader yeah. and, and, your new book, uh, Tempered Resilience, is all about how leaders are formed in what you call the crucible of change. Mm -hmm. What led you to write this book? Well, okay, so it was somebody asking me a question. So I spent the better part of five years going around the country talking about canoeing the mountains, introducing people to the idea of adaptive leadership, thinking that we need to lead differently. And, and this, is the, this would happen, I mean, more than a dozen times where someone would take me to lunch before they put me on a plane again. And they would say something that basically went like this. That was really helpful. I don't think we have anybody who can do that. <laughs> and I would go, and at first I thought, oh, okay, well, I got to do a better job of training. That's what I got to do. And he went, and I remember one guy looked at me and said, no, I don't think we have anybody who has the stomach for this. Mm -hmm. Like what you're talking about, mm -hmm. we're not even constitutionally able to do. So how do you, where do you find these? He said, where do you find these people? And I, what I realized is you don't find them. You have to form them and they're formed in that process. And so what I really did is I start, went back and I started looking at um, how do you form the kinds of people who can be resilient in the face of internal resistance? That's the soul sucking thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about your experience, Sean, but most pastors I know never burn out leading people to Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. They, they never burn out. I mean, they don't burn out with, oh my gosh, there's needs in our neighborhood and, and people are mobilizing to, you know, to bring the good news of the gospel and the love of Christ to people. They don't burn out. They burn out when you say there's needs in our neighborhood and you people say they're going to go with you. And then you realize you're by yourself or they're mad at you now for doing the very same thing thing you said you were going to do, or they're angry that you're not attending to them or you know, competing stakeholders. I mean, the hardest part, I would say most pastors will tell you the hardest part about COVID was not COVID. It was their own congregations. Mm -hmm. yep. And that is soul sucking. And that's ultimately, that's the language that Ed Friedman uses of sabotage, where anxious systems sabotage because they're anxious. 
you know, sabotage is not the bad things evil people do. It's the human things anxious people do. And because people experience, when pastors experience sabotage of their own people, the, it destroys them. I mean, they just get, they just it didn't expect it and they just feel. And so then you start doing bad things and self-medicating in different ways and doing like, mm-hmm. You get what's called either a fail, Ed Freeman called a failure of nerve, where you collude with the people to non-change and sacrifice your values, or you have a failure of heart where you become cynical and bitter and angry and disconnected. And either one stops mm-hmm. the transition process. In that um, building of resiliency, you talk about, uh, well, the metaphor. I mean, you took blacksmith classes uh, to, to really understand this. Fascinating. Uh, and the metaphor of a blacksmith tempering a blade Help us to understand how that picture of, of a blacksmith tempering a blade uh, is how resilient leaders are formed. Well, so, so the metaphor came because I saw a section of the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King, where he says where he literally is looking at um, a group of folks who have come from the front lines of the civil rights movement. Right. He's mm-hmm. 250,000 people gathering in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Most of them have come from the protests and the marches and the lunch counters and the dogs, and the hose and the jails. And he looks at these folks and he says, um, he quotes Isaiah, thir- of Isaiah 40, you know, that God is going to redeem this world, change this world, bring down the mountains, raise up the valleys. I said, because he believed that God was going to someday redeem this world down to the dirt, like that was going to happen. God's glory is going to be seen. He said, with this faith, I go back to the South. So we go back to the lunch counters, the marches, the protests, the dogs, the hoses, and jails. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, stones of hope. Hew. That was the verb. And it just caught me. Hew. Now, what do you do when you're facing a mountain of despair? Like, that's what, when people are burning out, it's like, yeah. oh my gosh. Mm. You know, well, our African-American brothers and sisters can tell us what to do when you face a 400-year-old mountain of despair. And the answer is, you don't blow it up with dynamite, you don't bash it with a sledgehammer, and you don't back down. You hew it. You got to be able to hew it. Hew stones of hope. Um, With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. We'll be able to transform these jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. So hew and transform. So then the question became, for me, it really became a formation question. So how do you become a tool that can hew? And in blacksmithing, that's a tempered tool. That's a chisel, not a sledgehammer. And that is something that is stronger. It's been shaped and formed to be stronger than the raw material, but it's also more flexible. It can shape, it can carve, it can, it can make something. And that process in the book, I talk about as a process of heating and holding and hammering and tempering. And that process is really about reflection relationships a rule of life a set of spiritual practices mm-hmm. and a rhythm of leading and not leading and what and the most important part of the whole thing is that happens while you are leading you can prepare so much but it's actually a formation process in the middle of leading which is why you're know, going back to the fact the good work that you guys do you know hope how do you hew stones of hope you hew them when you're facing the mountain of despair like yeah. that's the hardest part yeah yeah that's oh, that's so powerful. One of the one of the convictions we have at PIR is um, that we partner with the local church. So all this healing uh, that we we want to bring pastors to, we we believe strongly needs to happen in the context 
of the very place where they have found pain yeah. in the local church. And boy, is that a hurdle to get over uh, yeah. sometimes. And yet to see the, the beauty of that. I wanted to press in just a little bit with, you know, as, as uh, a pastor is facing this mountain of despair, uh, what, what are the signs? What are, what are the, the indicators that they can perhaps even see or others can see uh, and speak to them that, that perhaps they're not um, choosing resiliency, that they're yeah. becoming brittle? Yeah. So, um, so in, the, in the book, I identify two kind of big categories. One, I call the category, it comes from Ed Friedman's work. It's called the failure of nerve. Mm-hmm. It's really where you start compromising the mission to collude with the anxiety of the congregation to not change. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for, for many pastors, part of their burnout, they don't realize is the burnout comes from having betrayed their values. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I came here to lead this church, to reach my neighborhood. I spend all my day doing nothing but making sure people who sing in the choir are comfortable. Mm-hmm. I got nothing against choirs, nothing against people mm-hmm. being comfortable, but that's not why we're here. You know, it's like, like I, I, didn't, I didn't come here to help boats be safe in the harbor. I came to lead an armada, armada that was going to go make an impact in the world. Mm-hmm. So that failure of nerve that colludes um, in the book, I talk about the Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, where literally he's addressing, and I think of it this all the time because they, they were mainline pastors. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. So he's, he's addressing Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian pastors who literally say, we're not against what you're trying to do. We're just against your methods. And he's saying, brothers, and they were men, brothers, you are colluding with the clanners. Like you are, you are, your desire, he called, he said, moderate, his moderate clergymen were more painful to him than the Ku Klux Klaners. Wow. I mean, it's just devastating, right? Yeah. We start realizing when we collude with the non-change and we leave the status quo in place, not only does the the lack of the the ability for the mission to go forward happen, but I think something within us dies a little bit. Mm -hmm. But some of us were so hard, we're so aware that we don't want to do that, that we have what I call a failure of heart which is where we become cynical and brittle and angry. We're like Moses who, you know, the second time the people said, oh, we're, we want to go back. We, we want to go back to slavery because, I mean, we had leeks and onions for lunch. I mean, yes, they killed our children, but we did have leeks. <laughs> and onions, right. The second time, the first time he just said, God's going to deliver manna. And they did. God did. God, and they kept going. The second time, they're now bored. They're not hungry. They're bored with the miracle God does for them. Mm. So he says to God, if you're going to leave me with these people, you can kill me now. Mm. And I always say to pastors, you know, I don't know if you <laughs> ever prayed that prayer coming home after a Sunday. Morning, <laughs> but I'll bet you thought I could sell real estate. I could sell life insurance. I could teach biology. I always think I could do trail maintenance in the national park. I could walk around the national parks picking up stray cigarette butts and paper and litter and move a rock and move by myself, make the place a pretty place that nobody trips. Oh my gosh. And what you don't realize is what's happening is you're becoming cynical, disconnected, mm. angry. I said, I work in a seminary. People show up with post-traumatic church disorder all the time. Mm-hmm. And so part of what you're trying to do is recognize the signs. I always ask, I ask pastors every time I speak on this, I say, I want you to just ask yourself, are you more prone to a failure of nerve or a failure of heart? Mm. Because both of those 
can lead to burnout and can lead to deep disappointment. That's so true. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the crucible of change. I'm kind of hoping you're going to tell me that a crucible is sitting on the beach, <laughs> sipping Mai Tais, you know, and enjoying the sunshine. But I have a feeling it's going to be more about pain and difficulty. So uh, what is a crucible of change? And are there predictable steps? Or is it different for each leader? Well, change itself is a crucible, like just change itself. One of the things, one of the best things that I read that, that just, it, it brought everything to, to me together, which was this, people don't resist change, they resist loss. And people will go a long way to not lose stuff. The fear of loss is so huge, they will even sabotage you, right? They get angry, they get mad at you. So what you start realizing, I always say, when you talk about sabotage, you're talking about the human things that anxious people do. We're so anxious and fearful about loss. So what for most of us as pastors, we were trained how to help individual people go through loss. Like we, we, we show up at hospitals, we show up at bedsides. I, I was 26. I had three people die in the same day. I, 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 at 32, 33 years old, I put the body of one of my elders who died in my arms back into his bed and had to go wake up his children and tell them their daddy died like like we have done this we all every pastor i know does this we're signed up for that what we didn't realize is we'd have to do that with a people and a system and a community that looks at us and blames us for the loss mm. and the crucible is sitting there in the middle of it knowing they're mad at you and you have to lead them through this and most of us i mean i said you know <laughs> Heifetz, Ronald Heifetz says, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. None of us got into ministry to disappoint people. You know, we got into ministry because we want to introduce people we love to the God we love. And we're going to do that by creating a church they're going to love. What's not to love? Mm -hmm. And that transformation actually is really painful. And people get mad and they get mad at us. And the crucible is that moment. We know we have to keep going. We know we have to keep being faithful to our calling and our own people are resisting it. it. It seems like so many people go into ministry, I don't want to say blind to that fact, but maybe a little oblivious to that fact or, you know, with rose colored glasses on, you know, not my church, you know, I'm, I'm going to, and then like you say, you realize ministry is with people. Uh, how can those going into ministry be better aware of that? And those who are in ministry better navigate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are great questions. I, you, I, tell, I can tell that you guys work with real life pastors in real life situations. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, um, I'm just so, reflecting so, on my own life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 let me say this. This is so. Um, this, this, hopefully, this will make sense. Um, part of the notion of adaptive leadership is that you divide your problems into two buckets. One bucket are technical challenges. And technical challenges are not trivial. They're important things, but an expert can do it, right? I would say like a, a heart bypass is a technical challenge, right? A root canal is a technical challenge. Uh, flying a jet airplane and landing it safely, technical challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Experts can do it, right? Preaching the Trinity, giving a good sermon that doesn't fall into heresy by using like, you know, shamrocks or eggs or waters or something. <laughs> you, you can do it. And because we train people how to do it, right? Yeah. An adaptive challenge is a challenge that there's no best practices. There's no expert. You're going to have to lead people through learning and through loss. 
The hard part is that for most of us, we get the opportunity to lead people in adaptive challenges because we were good at technical challenges. Like, like we were, so if you're a really good speaker, they ask you to preach. You're a good preacher. They ask you to become the pastor of the church as if being able to give a sermon is the same thing as being able to lead a people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It's like being the, the best salesperson. And they make you the sales manager. Like it's a totally different skill set, but we do it mm-hmm. all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so part of what you realize is you like, you can be a really, really great volunteer. That everybody loves. You can teach the best Sunday school. That everybody loves. And as soon as you're in the leadership, you got to now work with people who are going to resist you. Mm. And so you didn't sign up for it. Like I, I keep thinking, you know, how many people we called in the ministry because, oh my gosh, you're like, the, you run the best youth group. The kids love you. The, you're a good teacher. People love you. People love you. People love you. People love you. And, and as pastors, we're often told, like I said this, I never once told my plumber. I love you. you know, I, 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 a check. I would say, thank you. I would say, I'm always calling you, but I never, people tell me they love me when I finish mm-hmm. this sermon. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with these people who love you? I mean, literally pastor Todd, we love you. We pray for you and your family every day. And then next week you're telling them that here's some stuff we got to do. And they're so mad at you mm-hmm. that you don't even know what to do with that. Yeah. And that, that part, we were never, t- this is why, leadership is really important to help people understand that it's a different skill set. It's a skill set that you have to learn. It's not a title and heavy furniture and it's a corner office. It's a skill set and we have to train people in it because we, and we haven't very often. And and would you say it's a skill set that's perhaps tied more to character than to competency? Well, it's kind of tied to both, right? So think yeah. about this. So here's one of the ways that I talk about it is that uh, most of us think my job as a leader is to be a trustworthy leader. That's true. If you don't have trust, people aren't going to follow you. But the problem is trust is not transformation hmm. any more than having a big bank account. is the same thing as building a house, hmm. right? You've got to be able to have tr- the high degrees of trust. So, and trust is built through both competence and character. What I call in that, I call technical competence and relational congruence. Mm-hmm. Um, because congruence is the way character is experienced by people. Like my internal character feels congruent with what I tell you and what I do with you. So you end up trusting me. And competence means I've experienced your skill set as being helpful to me. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. You know, you preach sermons, the scriptures come alive. I meet you and I feel loved by God in the way that you talk about it. That feels congruent. Mm-hmm. What that leads is to trust. The problem is, is you've got to take that trust and you've got to invest that trust in transformation, which means the trust goes down. And for most of us, what we just are, what we want is we never want to have our, the trust go down. So what we do is we end up building, you know, barns and storehouses of people loving us. And there's the failure of nerve. Hmm. Oh my gosh, how dare you do this? Well, we do this, we dare do this because this is what we have to do to become the people God can use to fulfill God's mission in the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. So I would say the, the key is you got to be able to keep refueling on trust while you invest it in transformation. And, you know, that's a skill set we haven't spent as much time on. Mm-hmm. So when I was a young pastor um, trying to lead change in a church, one of the things that would happen is, you know, I'd spend a huge amount of energy convincing people 
uh, and facing criticism, dealing with objections, and finally get people to agree to change. And I'd be like, yes, now we're moving forward. <laughs> and it's right at that moment that the wheels fell off the cart and everything fell apart. And I was so defeated and wanted to give up. What was happening there? Well, that's, I mean, you just described sabotage in a nutshell. I mean, that is what Friedman says. He says, this is the hardest part about sabotage is that you have to first make the change. So you do all that work to get everybody to agree to the change, then face the sabotage. So I would say, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian. I said, you know, Presbyterians believe that if we bring an idea to a group that has authority and you have a properly called meeting that is moderated with a proper function like Robert's Rules of Order, and you have a properly called vote, and you get one vote more than the majority, you get Pentecost. Like the Holy Spirit fell. This is, this is it. This is our moment. Like this is us. This is as much as we get going, right? Well, the problem is, is that you think you just won the day. We get really good at getting everybody to the vote. And then we think, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing. No, no, no. It's after you made the change, the sabotage comes. Hmm. And this is why, like, in Temporary Resilience, the most powerful story to me is after the Red Sea, after the Red Sea, after they are liberated, they watch Pharaoh's chariots die in the sea, they are free to go to the promised land. After that, they say, maybe we should go back. So what you're saying, then, is you've done the work for change, you've got the agreement, you're moving forward, that's when the real work begins? That, that's when the resilience is needed to be able to push through the sabotage to unity and resolution on the other side? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Friedman literally says, you can't consider yourself successful until after you've made a change, then survive the sabotage. Mm. So even when I was doing some work at Fuller, I came to Fuller to help us you know, uh, rethink theological education in a changing world. And we had this you know, incredible amount of change in the first year. And it, and everybody was all in favor and it was all great. I had to say to my team, now the sabotage. Oh, and that's when it did. That's when the faculty raised, like that's when, oh, I mean, we were told, oh, was, we had data. I mean, we had data points. Hey, this is working. Yeah, but. <laughs> like, just, like, like almost every chain, I mean, the example that I often use is, you know, if you look at the Saturn car, the car that GM created, to um, a whole new system. Uh, I was just I was just in the neighborhood where they where they built them in in Tennessee, and I was speaking about this. You know, they create a car that within four years was the number four car best-selling car in the country, and ten years later, they sold it off for parts mm -hmm. because the institution will rear rear its head to go back to the status quo just happens over and over and over again. So a pastor working in a system like that uh, and, and needing to minister to the saboteurs, uh, how can they gain a different perspective of, of those people? Well, for me, this is why thinking about them not as bad people doing evil things. It feels mm -hmm. like it. I don't mind telling right. you. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I have to tell myself they're not bad people. Yeah. This is not, they're not bad people. Um, but to say they're humans doing anxious things. Mm. Like, so, I, so I, whenever I speak on this, I say, you know, remember the root word for family and familiar is the same root word, which means when people are in unfamiliar territory, they feel unfamilied. Mm. 
they don't feel disoriented or they don't feel, you know, disconnected. They feel abandoned. Mm-hmm. And so they want to run home to mama. They'll go back to the familiar, even if it's slavery in Egypt. And so when you start realizing that now I can be compassionate. I realize I've got to get closer mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole key to sabotage is you not, you have to manage your own reactivity, my own, mm-hmm. this feels like evil. And I want to lash out at you, but I got to manage that stay calm. I got to get closer to people. Like I, when one of the parts I work on in temporal resilience is the development of attunement of attunement is a way of talking about empathy. Mm-hmm. That is for the sake of change, like, mm-hmm. like helping people feel felt understood as a way of helping them trust you and staying with you as you move them forward. Hmm. Um, attunement accelerates change. And what most of us do at that moment, because we're so disappointed and we're so angry that they sabotage us is we cut off mm-hmm. right at the moment when you really need to do is be, you've got to accompany people through their loss so that they will keep going. Hmm. So what you're talking about is moving toward them with curiosity hmm. and empathy rather than disconnection so that takes a fairly strongly differentiated leader um to to be able to do that doesn't it yeah actually and that is the the key skill set for the leader is really the sense of that i mean um i use the blacksmithing metaphor and one of my favorite things i discovered is i I spent some time asking the question like okay so if this process changed steel into a tool what's the steel like what's the raw material Hmm. And one of the most interesting parts is all the literature. So I, I looked at both you know, like organizational leadership literature and spiritual formation literature. And you start realizing that there is this stuff about identity and character, like my identity in Christ, my character. I am, you know, I know that I'm loved by God. I know that I'm a child of God. Um, they also see in the leadership side stuff like self-differentiation. I have a clear identity and I can stay in relationship with someone else. Um, I have a reason and vocation for being, I have a sense of calling. This is mine to do. All those things to me came together in what I call being grounded, Mm. being grounded in something other than your need to be successful. Mm -hmm. So there's the irony, like, like you, we get, have a, we are stronger leaders if we don't need to be successful leading. Mm -hmm. If we're grounded in something else. And for me, this is the story of Jesus where before Jesus does anything, before he does anything, before he preaches a sermon, casts out a demon, confronts the power, anything, he is told, you are my beloved. Mm-hmm. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation. You are the pride of my life mm-hmm. before he's done anything. And I want to say part of what we need to do as leaders is we have to be grounded in that reality that we are loved before we've done anything. Now we can be transformed into something that God can use to do a very particular thing. Mm-hmm. I have a, kind of a mantra that I use when I'm when I know I'm going into that crucible or facing that sabotage. I I tell myself, "You are fully and completely and permanently loved, and you have nothing to prove." Oh, um, beautiful! Yeah, oh. uh, and I got to tell you that that has helped me. So so much in being able to step toward people with curiosity and empathy. Oh, I love the part you have nothing to prove. It's so interesting that you said that because when I coach pastors, I'll often say, go into that meeting completely committed to expressing yourself clearly. Like, this is what I believe. This is what I care about. This is how much I care about you, but try not to prove yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Like, and I think you're exactly right. When you're, when you're trying to prove yourself, you end up faking it. Mm-hmm. And the faking it is what leads us to becoming brittle. I mean, there's just, it's the, it's the opposite of the vulnerability we need to actually be transformed. Mm-hmm. So I love that. So, so part of this work, uh, as you mentioned in the book, is self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that important for the formation of a leader? Well, so I think of self-reflection. So everybody, everybody thinks of leadership, the, the crucible of leadership. Oh, it's blacksmithing. Oh, I get it. The heat, the heat of being a leader. My dad used to always say, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Right? Yeah. That's true. It's very, you know, no doubt about the fact that when you're cooking, the kitchen's hot. My grandmother owned a, had an Italian restaurant and she was always had a bright red nose and sweaty because it was hot in the kitchen. <laughs> but I always go, look, the problem of becoming a resilient leader is the kitchen isn't hot enough. Mm. Uh, you, you can't become a, a tool that can become a chiseled, uh, like a tempered tool unless you can heat that thing up to 2000 degrees Mm. until that thing gets hot enough where it becomes soft and malleable. And for me, that's the work of self-reflection. For most pastors, one of the hardest things is, how do I get genuinely self-reflective at the very moment when I just want to be hardened? Mm -hmm. And that ability, that's the heat of self-reflection. When you are able to be vulnerable, I was coaching a pastor from, I mean, he's part of the staff of a big church in the, in the East. And yesterday he was talking about just how frustrated he was with a number of things going on. And he was amazing. He's a great leader. And he, every single thing he was frustrated at, he had reason to be frustrated at. And what he did with me literally went, he goes, and he paused and he goes, but what I got to do is figure out what's my part in this mess. Why do I let this happen? How come I got here again? And I looked at him and I went, this is, this is gold. Your ability to own your part in it. Without taking, without, without letting people off the hook, he had a bunch of people who were running with the scissors. They were doing the wrong things, but <laughs> he could own the most actionable part is for me to become self-reflection, self-reflective about why I'm letting this happen, why I get myself in this position, why I get angry. He's just paying attention to it. That self-reflection is heat. And most of us, that's what we try to avoid. We just don't, we're not as reflective as we need to be, and especially those of us in leadership. We the higher, the more and more we get into leadership, the more we get insulated against our own, mm. you know, vulnerabilities. That's that's the problem. And and self reflection doesn't mean isolation, though. It's no. it's not you know I go on the top of the mountain and just kind of get inside myself. That it 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 has that dynamic of, of personal quietness with yourself, but also uh, depends on others. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so many pastors just don't have healthy, secure relationships. Yeah. Um, so how, how does that affect their ability to be resilient? Well, so I described, you know, in the blacksmithing process, talk about heating, holding, hammering, tempering. The holding part is the anvil, like the center of the process. If you just think about this, the two things you have to have if you're going to blacksmith besides the steel and stuff is you really got to have a fire and an anvil. Mm-hmm. Everything else you know, you can, you can use lots of different tools, but you got to have a fire and anvil. So you have to have reflection and you have to have relationships. Mm-hmm. And really to me, the most, and this is, I mean, this is why I'm so thrilled about the work that you guys do and people like you, because what you're really talking about is you, is that the vulnerability of leadership requires the security of relationships. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't have nearly enough. I mean, especially men, the, the statistics show that men mm-hmm. don't have as many relationships. The older you become as a man, you get less relationships. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man in, in leadership, you get less relationships. And so even women having into leadership are beginning to copy 
male patterns and having less relationships. And we're told, hey, it's lonely at the top. And, and the answer to that is, oh, it's deadly to be lonely at the top. Yeah. It's like, I tell people, it's, I think it's leadership malpractice to try to lead alone. Mm. And that you need, you know, I would say partners, mentors, and friends. You need people who are partners. They care about the mission even more than they care about you. That's how you know they're a partner. If you stopped, they'd keep going. Mm -hmm. You need friends. Those are people who care about you more than they care about the mission. You know, if you stop, they're going to stay with you. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, I would say my friends are the people who look at me and say, Todd, congratulations on having a new book out. I go, yeah, I'm thrilled. Do you want to read it? And they go, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I'm just happy for you. Just like, happy for you. Yeah. yeah. I got some of my friends, they're in the acknowledgements. They go, I read the acknowledgements. That's not my name. In it. Like, they're, not interested. they're not interested in leadership. That's not what they're called to do. They got other stuff they do. Right. Mm -hmm. But your mentors, and this is the place where like your organization comes in. Mentors are people, I say, my mentors are people who care about me so that I can fulfill my mission. Mm -hmm. They're the, my coach, spiritual directors, therapists. Sometimes they're just mentors. I've got a mm -hmm. Texas businessman in my life who I meet with every month because I want my consulting company to really be a good company that serves people well and treats people well. I've never run a company before. I've been a church, been a nonprofit, been at school, never had my own company. So I've got a mentor who's really good at running companies. Mm -hmm. And I talk with them all the time. And the key is that you have to show up on that anvil, malleable, 2000 degrees, like soft, open to being shaped, not, not show up trying to impress anybody. I, I, last thing in the world I should do is try to impress this man. <laughs> I can't impress him. He's a wildly successful businessman. He's got way too much time. But if I show up with a genuine place of my own insecurity, my questions, my need, my, he's, he holds it and mm. I get changed. So it's that, that tension in ourselves of intentionality and authenticity, or vulnerability. Yeah. 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 And deep relate. I mean, I mean, I always say that if you do nothing else but cultivate more honest, vulnerable self, authentic self-reflection in safe relationships, then the rest of the process can roll out. But without it, I mean, really, you can have all the hammers in the world. And you're hammering on hard steel. Nothing's you're going to mar and scar it. You're not going to create any. Nothing's going to get transformed. So you mentioned in the book uh, the importance of not only being in that space where you're 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 being formed, but also um, having having a place to to rest, to pull back. I don't want to say that that rest isn't formation. That's not what I'm trying to get at, but. Um, What's the, the importance of the rhythm of leading and not leading, of leading and rest uh, yeah. for resilience? Well, Sean, this is actually the critical part about the resilient part. Like, so, to, so you can build a lot. You can get a lot of things. You want to build a sledgehammer? You don't need to have any, you don't need to take any stress out of it, right? So what you need is tempering is actually when after you've worked the steel, you let it cool slowly so that it slowly releases the stress that's in the steel. It's different than plunging it into water. You plunge into water, it locks in the stress. That's actually one of the things I learned about metallurgy. I, I know very little, but what I learned was when you've got a heated piece of steel and you're pounding it with a hammer, you're not only shaping it, but you're compacting the molecules or adding stress to it to make it stronger. That's how it gets stronger. It's that heated pounding. Well, if you take that same tool and you start using that chisel against a rock, you actually keep adding stress to it. 
it keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But eventually it gets so much stress in the steel that it becomes brittle and it breaks. So a tempered tool is a tool that has had the stress taken out of it so that it has flexibility. It's still strong. It's just had the stress taken out of it. And I learned this because I was doing this presentation and a guy who was a miner walked up to me and said, hey, before I was a pastor, I was a miner. And, you know, we'd be down in the mines working all day and we couldn't go home until you took your pick back to the forge, heated it up and let it cool slowly and heated it up and let it cool slowly. And you did that over and over again until a blue line went down the steel. And that blue is the color of a tempered steel. Mm. That's why Carl Sandburg has a poem called Laughing Blue Steel. And that is said, so for me, what I say to leaders is you need in your life rhythms of places where you are letting stress go because you're not leading. And that has to be done regularly. So yeah, you need rest. Mm. Yes, you need Sabbath. Yes, if you can get a sabbatical, you should take a sabbatical. But what you also need is to ask yourself, what are the things that I do every day that allow me to release the stress? And what are the things that do I do regularly that allow me to have a deep immersion of relaxation? So part of you know, two things in part of my life. One is um, almost every night I cook my wife dinner. And, and, you know, and I got, and some people are like, that's stressful to me. Well, to me, it's not actually, I come from a family of cooks and <laughs> I like doing it. And here's the best part about cooking dinner. It's totally technical. I can, if nothing else, I can read a minute. I can read a recipe. I cook dinner. And when I'm done, my wife is happy. Like it only has to be a <laughs> mediocre meal and they're happy. So I end my day every single day with someone being really happy at something I did for them. That just alone is a good reminder for me that I just need that. Cause I spent a lot of my day working with people who are not happy or having a hard time, or I'm having to do a leadership experience that I'm, people are struggling with. So I have that regularly. And the other thing I do is I regularly do stuff outside, like being in nature, having sports are outside, because I need to be part of something that is so much bigger than me that reminds me, you know, there's nothing I can do to this mountain except mess it up. Like, like as long as I don't burn it down or litter it or exploit it, it's been here hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years before me. And it could be equally after me. I get to immerse myself in something so much bigger than me that it just reminds me that I'm one part of God's great creation. And it just restores my soul. Literally, it just does something to me like nothing else does. Mm -hmm. Those things are deep, deeply restorative to me. I mean, my, literally, my family says to me stuff like, Dad, you got to go play outside. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like a five-year-old, right? <laughs> like, go play outside. Right? <laughs> Send me outside. Yeah. So, so how does someone look for that that blue line in their life? I mean, what what is it they're looking for? Well, for me, I look at it as if you were paying attention to. Um, th there's this um, one of my Mike. I had a coach for three years named Jim Osterhaus, and he wrote a book called Thriving Through Ministry Conflict. Hmm. And one of the things he did in that book is he talked about what he calls the difference between red zone and blue zone. Mm -hmm. When you find yourself activated, it's about me. It's about my ego. It's about my insecurity. Those are red zone moments. Those are stressful moments. Blue zone is when you're able to calmly say, this is about the mission. It's not about me. So for me, the same thing, a tempered person is saying, this is, we go back to work. We go back to the South. Uh, we, we can go back to the, I mean, 
we're not fooling ourselves. This is a crucible. This is hard, but we're talking about dogs and hoses and jails. This is hard, but we have something bigger than ourselves we're part of, and we're going to give ourselves to that. And I do think there's, when you are in that tempered place, you are able to make it about the mission and not about me. Mm. And that's how I often think about it. Like, can I serve myself wholeheartedly to this mission? Does it give me joy to support this thing? I mean, I went from being a senior vice president in the seminary that I loved to saying, you know, eventually realizing what I really want to do every day is work with leaders on the front line. And like every single day, I'm either talking to, working with, listening to, coaching, consulting churches or leaders or groups who are trying to bring change. And I just, that is what I'm called to do. And that gives me, and I want to show up in the very best possible way I can for them. And I can't do that when I'm anxious, when I'm insecure, when I'm red zoning. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've been talking about is, is the difficulty in leadership. But um, I, I work with pastors who love their job and they still burn out. Yeah. They enjoy the work, but don't take rests. They, they continue to use your, your metaphor. They continue hammering away until they become brittle. Um, so how, how does uh, having some spiritual rhythms and a rule of life uh, help those pastors? Yeah. Well, Sean, this is, I mean, I should just turn this one back to you. You probably have even more experience <laughs> on this one than I do. Because, I mean, because, I mean, I bet you you'll notice that they love it and they keep doing it. But the reason why they're burning out is because there's something below it that they're trying to serve in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yep. I mean, I remember this. I, I, I loved being a pastor of church. I loved it. And I became a senior pastor when I was 33. And I remember my wife looking at me one day going, you're out every night of the week. And, you, I know, and you're out every night of the week. And you know, I just need to tell you, we're not going to have a good marriage and you're not going to be a good father if you're out every night of the week. And I remember the time thinking, oh yeah, I need it. I wasn't like angry that I was out every night of the week. I was just thrown in. I love the work. But I needed to think about my life as more than my work. And probably soon I realized was, I'm out every night of the week because I just really want people to think I'm doing a good job. I was a young pastor. I don't, Mm -hmm. I was insecure. I, I didn't have the ability to say, Hey, it's really important for me to be able to be home with my kids. Um, Because I, there was this unconscious, unreflective drive that was my ego need. And it was, if it wasn't going to burn me out, it was going to break my marriage. Mm -hmm. And I just needed to know that I'm bigger than my calling. And, you know, one of the parts I would say being 57 is I'm now in the stage of my life when I know that my contribution of whatever I give over the next 25 years, if God willing, um, is going to be probably decreasing as I give my life to other leaders and other people. And I have to be willing to say, that's my, that's the season of life I'm in. That's what I do. That's fine. My identity is bigger than my title or my, you know, book sales or whatever, right? Who I am is more important than what I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, just briefly to contextualize all, all of this conversation, you know, as I said in the, the uh, introduction that the last two years have just made it abundantly clear that what you're talking about is uh, the, the water or rocks that everyone is swimming in right at the moment yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in leadership. What are you seeing in ministry leaders right now? Well, part of what I'm seeing is this um, honest gut check 
that a lot of what we did before the pandemic is now coming home to roost. Mm. Like, like, like I said, the pandemic was revelatory. It didn't cause problems. It revealed problems. It revealed yeah. stuff. So, you know, when I ask leaders, I just almost every time I'm on a, web, on a webinar, especially on Zoom, I can just let them chat in, you know, what are the underlying issues that you've re realized? And, and there's two things that come out. One is there are these larger things that we didn't have the will to confront before that now we have to confront, mm. like a crisis of discipleship, um, a crisis of Christian community. We thought we were all much more committed to each other in the name of the Lord. And we, we divided over which newscast we watch, right? Mm -hmm. um, a commitment to leadership development. Oh my, you know, they say, you know, the old 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You know, every pastor I know would take that deal. If I can get 20% of yeah. my people, sign me up. Awesome. Right, right. So we're, you know, generations, we have known we're losing the generation. So a million millennials a year have been leaving the church for over mm. 10 years. It's just accelerating now. So it's making it all clear. And at the moment when we're seeing, hey, there's these underlying things we need to work on and we need to move forward to thrive. There is this giant pressure to go back to Egypt. Let's go back to what's familiar. Yeah. Pastors are having people just furious at them that we're not like, back to worship, get rid of masks, go back to what it was, go back. And, and I literally have to say to them, how do you stand there calmly and say, go back to what? Go back to the church that has been declining in almost every sector for most of a generation? Like go back and protect the great state of canoeing? Like, like, is it really about like, go, like go back and make sure that we preserve canoeing for the, or is it being willing to leave the canoes and go forward in the exploring? Mm -hmm. And we're at this moment, we're at this total yeah. long past moment where it's all become real and we have to make decisions about what going, going into the future will look like. Yeah, yeah, for such a time as this, wow. So Todd, where, where can our listeners learn more about you or connect with you online? Yeah, so um, the, the, some of the easiest ways, I mean, um, you can Google my name. That's just the easiest thing to report here. It's just the easiest <laughs> if you find all that stuff. Um, unfortunately, there's not many of us. Um, um, the, I'm at the Dupree Center for Leadership, the Church Leadership Institute, dupree.org slash church, um, or at my company, A.E. Sloan, S-L-O-A-N, leadership. A.E. Sloan Leadership. It's named after Alan Enid Sloan of Alburnett, Iowa. They were the center of our anvil. They, they took care of Beth and me when I was a young leader and um, we named our company after them. Uh, That's really cool. Well, we end our podcast asking all of our guests, what words of hope would you like to offer to pastors and their families? I would say to people, nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Nothing is wasted. You know, character brings perseverance and perseverance brings hope. Why? Because God's love is poured into our lives. Mm. So the most hopeful thing that we can know is um, God is with us, that the same God who someday is going to redeem this world down to the dirt promises to be with us every step of the way. And I believe nothing's wasted. So because I do every day, we can get up and we can work with a little bit more hope that God's presence will continue to transform this world. Well, Todd Bolsinger, thank you so much for your generosity and your time with us and the wisdom that you bring to this. Uh, we really appreciate you being a guest on Hope Yes, yeah, My pleasure.
And as always, we invite you, our listeners, to rate and review Hope Renewed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and to share this podcast with your friends on social media. It's a great way to help us continue to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that your hope in Christ brings resilience to your life. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed, and remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame. Thank you.